Good morning, everyone. All right. Uh, Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10 and verses 34 through 46. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 46, and follow along as I read. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses." who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now, if you're visiting Grace, you should know that we're moving through a sermon series, a summer series called Habits of Grace, which has essentially been a series on the things that Christians do that, uh, that uses uh, God to show them God's grace and mercy in their lives. We practice these habits, and God uses these habits to show us grace and mercy. This title, Habits of Grace, really drills down into an interesting biblical reality. Habits are the things we do, and grace is something that God gives us. So as each of the teaching team preaches through these habits, we've desired to be uh, balanced, balancing the practical, what I do's, against the essential, what God has done. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Father, Help us to hear rightly your word today. We come to you hungry and needy, all of us. Feed us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in looking at the list of habits, those of you who have been following along this summer, uh, this one might seem out of place. Uh, It did to me. And so I googled Christian spiritual disciplines and looked at the first ten links, and two of the ten mentioned evangelism, is a type of proclamation, 
as one of the habits. In fact, the two big spiritual discipline guys uh, these days, Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, they don't include it on their lists. So I started to think, why is this? Why is this habit missing from some lists? And after some thoughts, I've come up with some potential reasons. Uh, First, it seems implicit in some of the other habits. That is, proclaiming God's word, the truth of God, seems related to prayer and to worship and word ministry. Second, it might seem less a subject related to habit and more a subject related to Christian mission. After all, we've just had two uh, of our grace missionaries we've sent out who have been uh, really on mission, proclaiming God's word in various ways. And third, it might seem that proclamation is something reserved for some Christians, like pastors or teachers or evangelists or people who like to talk to strangers or people with porous social boundaries. Um, Those kind of people, right? And yet here at Grace, we've included it intentionally on this list. Uh, Habits we see as normal and valuable for the Christian life. And I think it's a good thing. And, And to unpack why I think this, you'll see in your bulletins, I've given you three points. Uh, what we proclaim, how we proclaim, and growing as a body that proclaims. But before I, for, I get to my first point, I want to fit in a stealth point that didn't quite fit into the bulletin, okay? And that is that we all proclaim something. In fact, essential to our human identity is that we're proclaimers, and that's because we're made in the image of God. Think about in creation. God could have just said, uh, let there be light, let there be day and night, let there be, you know, all the let there be's, and left it at that. But he tacked on to everything. He saw that it was good. It was good. This is very good. There are proclamations very uh, essential to who God is. God proclaims things. We find out that the word created everything. So we're proclaimers, but you don't need to be Uh, a Christian or even spiritual or even a person who goes to any, you know, uh, religious services to be a proclaimer. We make lots of proclamations, uh, religious proclamations too. Uh, One of my favorite mediums for religious proclamation is the back of cars, right? All right? Anyone ever sit at the light and see something like this? Like this? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh, oh, wrong direction. Might have to help me out back there. Jesse? Got me? All right. All right, there we go. Anyone seen this? Something like this on the back of cars? This is making a claim. What's the claim here? We are a Christian family. We are a school of ichthuses. There are two adults and two children, judging by the shape of the fish, okay? Right, there's a claim here. Now, granted, you have to have some cultural context to arrive at that conclusion, right? Um, How about this one? This one might make a claim uh, that's a little bit more pointed, right? Seems like this person probably uh, believes in evolution to the exclusion, ironically, of any Christian version of the creation narrative. Or they have 
a tadpole named Darwin. That's the <laughs> alternate possibility. Okay? Um, how about this? Now, this one's a little bit blurry. Anyone seen young Calvin repenting at the cross before? And this is not the theologian. It's the uh, kid who's too smart for his own good from Calvin and Hobbes, right? Uh, maybe it's because of all his hijinks and antics in the comic series, how he's really not been honoring his mother and father, and so he repents. Or maybe it's because of what he's been doing uh, on other logos on the back of cars. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. We don't know. Again, it's, it's a symbol, so it's up to interpretation. How about this one? This is a common one, right? And this one, the claim, the proclamation is probably a little bit more pointed, right? People are saying here something like universalism, all religions are equally valid, so they, you know, need to exist in the same coexist term. Or, uh, just as likely, uh, some version of can't we all get along? Religions have caused enough strife in the world already. Can't we just all get along, right? We see that proclamation. This is one of my favorites. I see some version of this often. Sometimes it's on a person's tattoo. Okay? Only God can judge me. And this is an interesting one. There's some context and content, content behind this statement. Maybe this person feels like the world's been judging him or her. Um, maybe a person feels like a judge incorrectly judged him or her. Like as in... The, a court of law, okay? Um, but it makes a statement that uh, God is the only one sufficient to judge this person, right? And there are various inferences we can have here. So the point of this is we're all proclaimers. We're all proclaiming something. Um, it's part of who we are. It's what we do. Part of the reason uh, social media has been so... Uh, uh, successful is because we like to promote and proclaim things. Now, stealth point over. Um, we're going to go to the first point, and that is that as Christians, our proclamation, our duty to proclaim as a habit, um, falls into two kinds. We see lots of proclamation in the Bible, right? People making declarative statements about God who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. Uh, they have a degree of conviction behind them. It's not just Bible trivia. Uh, it's statements of belief. I think one of my favorite places to look at proclamation would be the Psalms, right? Here we have um, mostly David, but others meditating on God's word and composing songs or poetry. And if you just want to look at one as an exemplar, Psalm 19 comes to mind. I'm going to read it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Skipping down to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. And he goes on. David is, 
experiencing the reality of God outside of him and responsively proclaiming what is true of God. First in creation, that you look in creation and you see the handiwork of God. He even says creation proclaims. But then he points to the law of God and makes proclamations about God's law being perfect and right. But also he proclaims the effect of God's law on him, right? Making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes. Lots of proclamation. And generally, as Christians, we should be proclamation people. As we encounter God's word, we should be people who are quick to employ that word and uh, impress that word onto life. The lives of those relationships we're responsible for and God has given us, whether it's family or uh, church members, or uh, anyone who we can encourage and, um, and show who God is, right? Proclamation is a great thing in that way. But this is not the only kind of proclamation. In fact, an Orthodox Jew could make that, that same proclamation that David did today in this church, right? Um, so we're Christians, right? We have... A, a broader view of the story. Something has been revealed to us uniquely as Christians that hasn't been uh, revealed to the Jews. And that's the gospel proclamation. And that's the second kind of proclamation I want to focus on. And I'm going to devote a lot of my time to this because I think this is a unique time and place in history where there's some confusion believe it or not, in the church of believers about what proclamation is. What is gospel proclamation? Now, if we look at the history of the word, we'll know that gospel is translated from some uh, early form of English, God's spell, which they probably translated from a Greek word from which we get evangelism, which means good news. And that word has a context. In the Old Testament and in antiquity, when... Uh, People would send their sons and husbands off to war. And when they won the war, they would send an emissary back to say, good news, gospel, your sons and husbands are alive. Good news, you are not going to be enslaved and subjugated to this foreign power who has killed your sons and husbands. And that's the context, the military context of the word gospel. But of course, in the New Testament, the New Testament writers reappropriate that word, don't they? Because they similarly recognize a good news of liberation. Just like there were people who went to war and there were generals and there was an enemy and there was a place where war uh, happened and there were various events related to that war and it was news, so the gospel is good news. And so let's look back at our passage in Acts and try to unpack from Peter's example, which I think is a good exemplar of what gospel proclamation looks like. What are the key elements of gospel proclamation? How would you know when you share the gospel that you're sharing the gospel? What are its key elements and why are they important? Look back at Acts 10 verses 34 and 45. It says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Two important things here in these two verses. One, and 
I think it's important to note, and I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but the gospel involves opening our mouths. The reason why I say this is because there is a kind of shadow gospel out there. Uh, Maybe some of you have heard the quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, right? Preach the gospel at all times, but if necessary, use words. Okay, now, maybe some of you have said that. Um, The spirit behind that is a good spirit, okay? So that's saying basically that Christians should be servants, that people should be, Christians should be humble, that we should love neighbor as self. These good things that relate much more to Christian service, But to say that Christian service, absent of a gospel message, is the gospel, is clearly unbiblical. That is not the gospel. Now, don't stop loving your neighbors. In fact, do it more. It's a good thing, okay? Um, But the reality is the gospel is repeating events, something that happened. Secondly, and I think this is really important, if you take nothing away from this sermon but this point, I think it's important. Peter recognizes here that God has a standard of righteousness that leads, if people accomplish that standard, they will be saved. Now, This is important. We have to recognize that our culture um, probably gives us some blinders here. At first glance, it might seem like this passage suggests, hey, well, good people who fear God and are right with him, they're going to heaven. Glad I'm one of those good people, right? Well, if you read your Bible from Genesis to Exodus the establishment of the law through the prophets, through the Sermon on the Mount, you will recognize that God's standard of righteousness is moral perfection. That's what it means. And the early hearers who were all part of some sort of sacrificial system, pagan or not, would be aware of this. That nobody's really right with God by their own Effort. We know from Romans 1, right? Paul says, no one is righteous, not one. No one seeks God. Well, this isn't sounding like good news. But this news, the reality of God's law, is really important. And I'd say it's really important for us as Christians who might believe that, not to recognize that most people probably don't operate under that same assumption. Just this week, those of us who have uh, been part of the Christian, uh, uh, Simply Christian Bible study, we're speaking to a couple of people, and this question came up. Uh, so-and-so is such a good person, why does he have to accept Christ to be saved? And this was uh, a young person who's been going to a local church for a couple of years. Um, and yet, just the baseline reality of God's law was absent. It was a blind spot. And so we have to be aware that our own righteous standard is not 
God's righteous standard. And we need to be aware of that for ourselves. If we're honest, we know that. How often do we fail at our own standards of righteousness? Uh, the answer is often. Um, we live in a kind of Stuart Smalley self-help world, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. People like me, right? That's not God's righteous standard. We're confronted in this passage with the reality of God's law, and we need to be thoughtful about helping people understand that. And so gospel proclamation will give a nod to the reality of God's law. My sister-in-law was in town, and she said, people need to know the gospel. And that was her way of fitting the word law in there as a a necessary component. Because otherwise, think about it. If I don't need to satisfy God's righteous standard, then Christianity, the gospel, becomes kind of a thing I do that works for me, but it's not necessary because I can operate on, you know, my own wits and ethics and morals and values to be good enough. That's a problem. The essayist Joseph Epstein recalls his childhood when uh, cigarettes were in plain view at the convenience store, but various forms of birth control were hidden beneath the counter. And in his adult life, he noticed that now the cigarettes are hidden, but the birth control is, you know, in plain view. Absent from God's... I'm not making a claim, by the way, which of those, if you're a convenience store owner, that's not meant to convict you or anything, okay? Um, But I just... I I think it's an interesting example of uh, a world untethered from... God's righteous standard. As Christians, we need to be the kind of people who recognize God's law as what David recognizes it as, something that is perfect, that is good. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've inevitably bumped up against some realities of what God says is good or bad that don't square with your personal experiences or your convictions. And it can be a challenge, but I would encourage you to, in faith, look at those things and confront those things and submit to the Lord in those things. Because the alternative is a world where God's righteous standard is something that we determine, not God, and that makes us functionally our own gods. And this is very common. In 2004, uh, interviewer Kathleen uh, Falsani was... Uh, speaking to the then senatorial candidate, Barack Obama. And she asked him some spiritual questions, and she asked him, what is sin? And he said this, his response, being out of alignment with my own values. Now, I use Barack Obama here as an exemplar of something that is true of the culture. He's the product of the same culture that you and I are the product of. And as Christians who are trying to walk in the light and uh, still in the world, we need to just guard against this. We need to be aware of this. And in our efforts to proclaim the gospel, we have to recognize the law and not shy away from it. Any understanding of the true gospel, the full gospel, recognizes the understanding of the law. 
Okay, let's continue. Uh, look at verses 36 through 39 with me. Um, we see in this passage several things which I would say are the essential gospel. Okay? We can glean a lot from this passage. We'll notice that there are people in places like John the Baptist in Galilee. There are uh, recognitions that Christ is anointed with power and that he backed it up with various kinds of miracles, not just to show that he's, a power, he's powerful, but as precursors to what he's going to do when he restores the entire uh, creation to himself. The ultimate reconciling of man to God. There's references to prophets testifying to him. If you want to look at Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, those are some good places to start. There's a lot we can glean from this. And essentially, we like to distill the gospel down to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that accomplishes Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for those who by faith believe in him so God can see us as righteous as Christ. But we also can't forget that Christ lived the perfect life on our behalf too. And he died on our behalf. That's the gospel. One thing about this story of who Jesus is that I think is notable and unique for Christians is that it is good news, that it's news, right? What we are trying to convince people is not a set of morals, ethics, and values that will help them become fulfilled in some way. It is a story of something that happened in history that God invites people to respond to. We need to really be very careful that when we talk about sharing the gospel, that we don't miss the gospel. Now, you might think, how could that happen, right? How could we be so dense as to make that happen? Well, I would suggest that there are some ways that we sometimes miss the gospel um, in our very efforts to proclaim it. Uh, Michael Horton, uh, who's a professor down at Westminster uh, in Escondido, wrote a book called The Gospel-Driven Life. And, of course, yes, that is responsive to the book The Purpose-Driven Life, right? And um, he illustrates the idea that sometimes we miss the gospel in our efforts to proclaim the gospel by showing us some fairly common Christian phrases and sentences that we use to share the gospel and how they miss the mark. So I'm going to mention a few of these, but I, I want to just say, first of all, my guess is in the room there are those of you who have used some of these, and I recognize that they're common, and I recognize that God does use these things, but alone they might be related to the gospel, but they're not the gospel. So here's one, and maybe you've heard this. I'm inviting you to have a personal relationship with God. Has anyone heard that? Okay, that's not the gospel. That doesn't mean that God doesn't, isn't a personal God. He is. He's a person and he's relational, but it's not the gospel. Let me unpack the, why. First of all, all of mankind has a personal relationship with God. And outside of Christ, that relationship is one of great offense to God. You are at uh, Ephesians 2. You are enemies of God and children of wrath. 
part of the problem is that we have a relationship with God that isn't right. That we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Can you see how that's different than, you know, uh, you can have a personal relationship with God? Can you see what's missing from that language? And can you see how the gospel shows that God, even though we have a destroyed and destructed and distorted relationship, entered in through Jesus Christ to reconcile things so you can have a true relationship with God that is a right relationship with God? That's gospel. How about this one? Asking Jesus into your heart. That's not the gospel. Now, can you enjoy uh, a growing and intimate relationship with the Lord? Absolutely. Does the Lord access your emotional life? Totally. I, I wouldn't contest that. But Jesus does not live in your heart. He actually is seated at the right hand of God, governing all of creation and will judge the whole universe. He is Lord of all, the living and the dead. Now, in coming to faith, He sends His Spirit, who through word and the other means of grace, does transform your heart and changes a heart from stone into flesh, and aligns over time our convictions and our desires with his own. Why? Because Christ restored that relationship with God, the gospel. Similarly, making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord over all. He is the Lord and Savior. Making him your personal Lord and Savior puts us in the driver's seat of decision-making. And I know this is a theological topic we could talk a lot about, but just look at our own passage. Who's the active agent in transformation? It says the Spirit was poured out on the people. The Spirit fell on them. This is God, this grand story of God restoring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. God making exiles and enemies his children is the gospel. It's what we see in Jesus' ministry. So, I'm not saying don't use those terms ever, okay? But what I am saying is when we share the gospel with people, we want to share with them something that is true outside of their own subjective experience and help impress that upon their experience. Something happened in reality outside of them, not internally in them, outside of them, and that is the gospel. And it does speak to the heart of who they are. Because without that, we have problems, okay? Without pointing to the gospel as the assurance of salvation, we point to other things, just on Facebook this morning, dear Christian uh, guy I went to college with uh, had a post and, and he said something to the effect of, never underestimate the power of God. Six months ago, I lived in an apartment and we thought this is what it was going to be. But now we have a house 
and now my daughter's going to the school she wants to go to, and I have, uh, I'm able to work from home, and we even have a dog, okay? Now, all of those might be really neat, uh, you know, heartfelt indications of God's work in his own personal experience, but the point is, if that's what somebody is resting on as proof of their salvation... It's dangerous, right? Because there are lots of people who, lost, who, who find things that work for them. In their own experience, it worked for me, and I'm happy about it, right? That's what CrossFit does and Plexus, right? Um, it works for them, and that's great. Some things work, and, and there can be really good advice. You can get a total money makeover, I understand. And that works for people. And it might be really helpful, but it's not the gospel, okay? Uh, the gospel is, is truth, and a lot of Christians in the world suffer for righteousness' sake because they're looking at the, what God is ultimately doing in their faith in Him. So we just need to be uh, thoughtful about how we proclaim. And on a related note, and, and this comes to the idea of testimony, personal testimony. You know who had an excellent personal testimony? Maybe the best ever, Peter, the apostle. Paul, a close second. Okay? Look at the models of where they... Now, uh, pastorally, Paul will uh, commend his personal experience to the churches, but in proclaiming the gospel, the focus is on the gospel. They'll recognize that they were witnesses. I'm sure people knew about who they were in some cases. Uh, and that is not to discount the power of your subjective story and experience in relating to people, which can be helpful in a testimony. But what we are called to testify to is the gospel. And then we can testify, here's the truth of the gospel, something that happened in history that God has done, and here's where I see it in my life and see God's faithfulness to me and helping me grow in it and through it. Um, but a testimony without the gospel, you can testify to being gluten-free and how much that's changed your life, and it probably has. But that's not going to save you. And I, I, I think it's important that we recognize the tendency in our own Christian culture towards universalism. And I'm not saying we're you know, a bunch of heretics, but functionally, this kind of idea that, well, it worked for me, and, well, they live lives kind of differently. We'll just, you know, leave it at that. Functionally is a recognition that, oh, it might not work for you. We need to be gospel, uh, gospel people, okay? So how? How do we do this, okay? Well, the Bible gives us a lot of examples of gospel proclamation, okay? So we read one, a descriptive passage of an apostle going to non-believers and proclaiming the word. We can go to Acts 4 and see that persecution happened, the church scattered, and they proclaimed the gospel. So descriptively and certainly the Great Commission, it's our job as a church. And as an individual, your part may be more or less, you know, front lines or support services or a mix thereof depending on age and stage. But what I want to get to, rather than the descriptive of what we might call evangelism, 
is the prescriptive gospel. We actually see it in our own passage. These people have heard the gospel, the Spirit's fallen on them, and what is Peter's response? What's to stop them from getting baptized? Westminster Catechism, question 88, says this. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer, Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption through his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. The major place of gospel proclamation after hearing the word in the Christian community is through word and sacrament. Word is what I'm doing right now, and it's what we've done. We worship God together, and we hear his word together in gospel proclamation. If you come to this church and you're not hearing the gospel often, tell us. It, we are a gospel-proclaiming people. It's, it's our mandate. It's what uh, Christ tells us to do. But it, we also see sacrament as being part of this. Sacrament is a, basically an old word for, or sometimes you see ordinances, for the Lord's Supper and baptism. We see baptism in our passage, but Paul describes the Lord's Supper as proclaiming Christ's death until he returns. Jesus commands, do this as often as you meet together. These are not just descriptive things of, what they did in the first century. These are prescriptive things from the mouth of the Lord about how we as a community are to proclaim the gospel. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means a few things. It, it, we do the Lord's Supper one focused Sunday night. I would encourage you to come to that um, because that is how you can proclaim the gospel in, in line with how Christ tells us to. And I know, believe me, I know that means stuffing your kids full of quesadillas at 4.30 p.m. and, you know, getting home after bedtime the night before school. I, it's, it can be problematic. But it's so important, okay? It's so important because this is where the community of believers gets up and says, yes, this is Christ's blood. Praise the Lord. This is his body. I need this and am enacting this to proclaim the gospel together, and I can be assured that the gospel is for me in this community. It's a very intimate moment when you serve the elements and when you take those elements. Much more than a hugging your friend, you know, during greeting time. The one time we tend to cheer in our church is when we baptize someone. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. We should cheer when people are baptized. Because that is how we reenact being buried with Christ and raising to walk a new life. And that's how we show that we're part of God's, the community God has established that's a gospel-proclaiming people. And the way we show it is by proclaiming it reflexively all the time. Now, some of you might say, wow, that's, that's really never thought about that way. Uh, thought about that that way. I just want to encourage you to think about that that way. That before you think about evangelizing, and you should. I mean, if you know non-Christian people, that should be, hopefully the Lord is working in your heart. But you think, how has, the God, how has God asked us to proclaim him in his body? 
and word and sacrament in the church, that is gospel proclamation. If you are giving yourself to that, you are proclaiming him in a good way. And our children are seeing it. And if your kids haven't you know, been baptized yet, you bring them, you have someone pray. They're watching all these adults in their lives, recognizing their need for the Lord. It's an important thing. So parents, that's an encouragement to you. And, uh, and, and related to baptism, uh, I remember when Elizabeth was seven, Laura and I thought she's probably a Christian. We went and we asked Gerald, hey, can you meet with us just to talk about this? It seems kind of early for baptism. And turns out at that time it, it kind of was, but it was an important uh, aspect of our parenting and um, being Deuteronomy 6 kind of people, teaching your children, being uh, Titus 2 kind of people, preaching the gospel to each other. It's important. Now, I've already kind of bled over into point three here. So um, how do we become gospel-proclaiming people? How do we grow in this? First of all, I, I don't want to discount evangelism. Maybe you thought today was going to be a talk on evangelism, and I hope it kind of has been. But I also want to recognize that as a church, we're, the elders, we're trying to figure this out. How can we help people go out. And we've started this relational evangelism, going through the book of Luke with three non-believers, and that's a start. A few of us are trying to do that. Hopefully we'll report out on how that went, because um, we do want to equip people. You guys have been given and stewarded relationships with people who don't know the Lord and need to. How can we equip you um, specifically? We're working on it. But I would just encourage you to think about where proclamation fits in your life, including in the life of the church, what the church has called you to do, and just responsively how you uh, proclaim in your uh, daily life to grow as uh, a body of proclaimers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us your word, doing what, it's what is necessary to reconcile us to yourself, being a God who loves us. Um, thank you, Father, for your sovereign plan in our lives, Lord, drawing us out of darkness and into the light. Help us to be gospel people through and through, Lord. Uh, move in us in this church that we may be bold proclaimers of the gospel in the ways that we see in Scripture and that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.